This message is from the Axis Church, a redeemed community of missionaries living for the fame of the real Jesus. For more information about Jesus or the Axis vision in Nashville, go to theaxischurch.org. We're finishing up our four-week series that we've been working through, um, entitled The Four Gs, Who is God and, and Why Does It Matter? Uh, we've been studying uh, three, today four, liberating truths about God, uh, uh, believing that underlying all of our sinful behavior, uh, negative emotions, is a failure to believe one of these four or a combo of these four at a practical, functional level. Uh, so I believe that these truths can help us identify uh, the sin beneath the sin, uh, the systemic issue, the root issue, not just the, the fruit, but why am I going after this sin uh, the way that I'm going after it? And it identifies that root unbelief, that root belief, that, that root issue, that sin, and it confronts it with the truth of the gospel. So the four G's that we've studied, uh, God is great, God is glorious, God is good, and then now for our time today, God is gracious. And they all have a tagline with them, um, something that we can kind of uh, have, have a nail to put something on, right? To hang something there. And it's so we don't have to prove ourselves. And these are on this uh, card. Um, I recommend we have this on our refrigerator of each of these four truths and the, uh, the, the lie that we're believing of how Jesus uh, find, uh, we find in Christ what we're looking for as we go after this uh, root sin. Uh, tremendously encouraging, very helpful, um, immensely practical. So if you can, grab one of these out in a foyer, throw it on your fridge or in your car or something, uh, something to look at often. I think it'll be encouraging and, and liberating uh, to focus on those truths. So today, uh, God is gracious, so we don't have to prove ourselves. We don't have to prove ourselves because God is gracious. Let me pray for us, and uh, we'll get to work. Lord, thank you for this morning that we have uh, together to gather in a simple warehouse in downtown Nashville to sing, to share in communion, to befriend, to know and be known, to hear the scripture read, to hear it preached. Lord, I pray that we will receive these things as grace from you and that we will, um, particularly now during the sermon, Lord, that we we won't just be uh, drifting or, or, or daydreaming or thinking about what's next, but that we will consider the truth that's being taught and that we will seek encouragement there and that we'll fight to stay focused and, and attentive, attentive, uh, Lord, in hearing your truth. Uh, I pray that it is truth. I pray that it is encouraging. I pray that it is helpful. I pray that it is uh, something, uh, Lord, of course, in accordance with your scriptures um, and that we leave uh, liberated in a sense, where we, we leave encouraged, we leave convicted and challenged and running to you um, for rest and for help. Or be with those who are overcome with guilt and, Lord, those who are tired today and just weary, um, particularly those 
encourage, encourage us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Uh, go ahead and turn with me, please, to Luke 15. Luke chapter 15. There should be a Bible close by if you don't have one with you uh, in the seat, under the seat in front of you. Um, if you don't have a Bible, take that one. Um, happy birthday. Um, <laughs> early or late, or I might have nailed it today. Um, so take that. Uh, but Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, it's in the back third of, of your Bible. Find Luke uh, chapter 15 and just kind of hold your place there. We'll, we'll get there in a moment. Uh, some diagnostic questions here. Um, have you ever felt like you're living your life on a stage where you're performing for your value, where you're performing for your worth? You're trying to prove that you matter. Or have you ever felt that uh, your identity is wrapped up more in what you do and what you produce more than just in simply who you are? We can often draw a, a direct line from our sin back to our persistent pursuit of performing before others. And it, it does seem that we want to prove ourselves to our children it does seem that we want to prove ourselves to our coworkers, our classmates, our neighbors, our friends, our spouse. It seems that we often try to try to prove ourselves uh, to our parents and grandparents. We need to look a certain way. We need to say the right thing in a certain way. Uh, we want some positive attention and some positive recognition, so we do certain things. Constantly performing, never truly just resting. And in our performance, we're also trying to prove something to ourselves. We want to prove to ourselves that we matter, that we're unique, that we're valuable, and that we're good for the team. We want to have a positive view of ourselves, and we'll often perform so that we can then judge others who aren't performing as good as we are. But a problem then is that when we base our value and worth on our performance is that often we find it very difficult to receive criticism. Don't point that out, right? Or that, uh, that wasn't my fault, and then they prove it was. Well, that wasn't all my fault, right? So you're, still, you're trying to fight for that. There, there's an excuse, there's a reason somewhere, if you look hard enough, that, that, that takes, the, takes the responsibility off of your failure. So when failure comes, we don't embrace it as just, I'm human. I'm limited. Rather, our world shatters. Or, if, if it doesn't shatter our world, we'll sweep it away and pretend it never happened. We'll just totally ignore it. So in either case, we're having to work. We're having to perform. We can't just embrace it with, with honesty. And anytime we fail in that moment, we're defined by that failure. And we feel in that failure, we feel our value decreasing by the second. And we begin to think to ourselves, one of the most destructive thoughts is, I'm a failure. I'm not good enough. And we, we allow our performance to define us. Anybody uh, grow up collecting ball cards? Baseball, football, basketball? Okay, good. I feel better about myself. We wasted a lot of money, y'all, <laughs> right? That was supposed to get me through college. That was supposed to pay for my house, right? <laughs> um, 
But did y'all, those who collected cards um, or had a brother or sister who collected cards, you might be aware of this, of the Beckett Monthly. Remember the Beckett Monthly, the, the magazine that told the value of your cards, which is some guy named Beckett just made this stuff up. And we're like, oh, this must be valuable, right? But you would look for the, the value of your cards, card by card, and there would, you're looking for the arrow beside the number going up. That meant over the last month, it's increased. And you were <laughs> disappointed if your card ever went down. As it, it takes a lot of imagination, but I have imagined what it would be like to be a professional athlete and then pick up a Beckett monthly and think, man, look how my value is deteriorating. Like Because, because it's based off of their personality or, or their performance. That's what made their value go up. Their card was worth more when they were performing better on the field or on the court. It went down if they were failing or if there was something personal that happened off the performance, public performance, it would go down if something personal happened in the person's life. That resonates with me personally when I consider my personal performance I often feel, wrongly feel, that there's a monthly guide or a daily guide where when I lay my head down on my pillow, was it, is it an up arrow or is it a down arrow? Have I, have I done enough today or did I just, I, I let some stuff slide today, my value's a little bit less. I don't know if that resonates with you, but it does with me. It seems that we're constantly trying to, to get the up arrow, the, the increase in value, that we're never just at rest, that we're always fighting to prove ourselves, that we're fighting to matter. And we're, we're often proud of ourselves or we're jealous of others. We're proud of ourselves when we do well, and we're jealous of others when they do better. We're proud when we think, man, I earn the credit that I'm getting. I earn my value. But then we're jealous when we think, well, they don't deserve that credit. They don't deserve that much recognition. Now, come on, that's a little bit over the top, don't you think? And then we find it hard to say thank you because there's this inner sense of entitlement. We feel like we deserve it. So saying thank you is sometimes as hard as it is to say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Because it's difficult for us to truly mean to say thank you because that sense of entitlement. So... If any of this resonates, I believe you're going to be encouraged today and find some rest and some fun while we're at it. So what does grace mean? Grace, freely given, unearned favor. Freely given, unearned favor. Undeserved approval. Undeserved acceptance undeserved kindness, undeserved generosity, undeserved courtesy, particularly to those who deserve its opposite. Here's what we mean by God being gracious. A couple things. Uh, Abraham Booth says, it is the eternal and absolute free favor of God manifested in the free giving of spiritual and eternal blessings to the guilty and the unworthy. So this is grace to all. Theologians consider this common grace, meaning it's common to everyone. 
where he allows people to live. He restrains certain evil and sin. He, he restrains his own wrath and judgment where he gives earthly blessings to all. We get to see beautiful sunrises and landscapes and sunsets and enjoy air, enjoy food and water, regardless if you believe in Jesus or not. Regardless if you see Jesus as Savior or not, you experience these good things. Believer and unbeliever, uh, they're, they're allowed to experience good things, and they can even do good. He causes uh, people who don't believe him to know certain truth. He's good. This is common grace. But then there's a particular grace where God gives saving grace, divine grace to those to believe in Jesus Christ. A.W. Pink says, divine grace is the sovereign and saving favor of God exercised in the giving of blessings upon those who have no merit in them and for which no compensation is demanded in return from them. So grace can't be earned, it can't be bought, it can't be won. If it can be, if it could be, then it would cease to be grace. Grace is pure charity to those who don't deserve it. Romans eleven six says, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. So it's not grace and your performance on the table. And that's not grace. It's grace and in spite of your performance on the table. It's grace in spite of your failure that would disqualify you from receiving the favor that you're receiving. It's grace. 2 Timothy 1, 9 says... It was God who saved us, God who called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus a long, 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 long time ago, before the ages began. There was grace before the ages began. That blows my mind. Ephesians 2 says, it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. This is a gift. It's not a result of your work. So the grace of God is God showing goodness to people who deserve only his wrath and those who expect nothing except his wrath and judgment as far as what they deserve. So this saving faith is God's grace. It's a gift. So God being gracious means that he doesn't act favorably upon us because we've accomplished something to deserve it. He acts because he is gracious. It's not just a gracious activity. He is gracious. Not because we deserve him to act. He acts out of his grace. He acts for us and in spite of us. So this begs the question, why fight to perform for your worth if he's already been gracious towards you? If he's already established your value? If he's already given you what you need? And that your value isn't based on your actions, but the action of his son. You see, the truth is we have performed. You've performed. I've performed. And we have successfully and fully earned judgment. We've earned death. 
We've earned this. So then all of life is unmerited favor. All of life is grace. Anything above the grave is grace. Every breath is grace. It's something that we don't deserve. So what do we have that we don't deserve? Well, everything. Everything. But to name a few, Jesus, the Bible, food, laughter, home, shelter, car, friends, freedom to sing together and gather together to hear scripture, family, the, uh, the privilege of being part of the church, toothbrush. Hopefully that's something you use today, right? We have toothbrushes. We have air conditioning. We have vitamins. We have medicine. We have soap. We have doctors. We have breath. We have water. We have shoes. If you, if you had to pick between which pair of shoes to wear today, then you're wealthier than, than 80% of the population of the world. Now, we're either going to see these things as undeserved favor, or we're going to look at these things as something we deserve. So when you see your toothbrush, is that something you deserve, or is that undeserved favor? You see, we talk about God being gracious in our salvation, but in our day-to-day life, it seems that we forget this and we so easily feel like we have to prove ourselves. We have to perform for stuff. We've got to perform for our value and our worth. But the gospel says that we can't earn anything from God, that we don't have to prove ourselves, that we don't have to perform. We earn isolation, yet we get community. We, we earn death, yet we get life. We earn separation, but we experience reconciliation, and we become ambassadors of reconciliation. We earn to be abandoned, yet we get rescued. We earn to be orphaned, yet we get adopted and granted an inheritance in a king's family, where God is your dad and Jesus is your brother. Until you see what we truly deserve, you'll never celebrate grace. Until you start being understanding that you're dead outside of God's grace, you'll never celebrate life. In other words, to break it down simply, if you start out being a pretty good person, then grace is just okay don't have to have it. But if you start out dead to the things of God, Ephesians 2, 1 through 4, 1 through 3, read it sometime. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. You were hopeless. You were living as if God was, was dead. You were dead to these things. You were following Satan. <laughs> it's crazy. It says it. If you start there, then you'll begin to celebrate grace. When we perform, we try proving ourselves and we inevitably will view grace as some sort of weird Christian karma hybrid. And that's not grace. And here's how this plays out. When we do something good, we expect things to go well. Well, at least better than the person who hates God. Or when things go bad, we expect judgment and suffering in our lives because we deserve it. So you don't read your Bible for a week, you get a flat tire on Saturday, you think, ah, 
He sees everything, right? That's not living out grace. That's, that's not Christian. That's religion, but it's not gospel. That sort of thinking sounds like the prodigal son story, and hopefully you've got Luke 15 somewhere close by. So look at that, starting in verse 11. Then Jesus is teaching, and he tells this story. Jesus says, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. Give me the share of property that I deserve. Okay, we'll say that because that's a phrase I'm using this morning. Give me the share of property that I deserve. And he divided his property between them, the older and the younger of the two sons. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, and he took a journey into a far country, and there he, he didn't really invest the stuff. He practically squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent, not some, but when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and got a job, and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And as he was longing to be fed, he was starving, he was hungry. He was longing to be fed with the pig's food, the pods that the pigs ate. No one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, and by the way, if, you write, if you're one to write in your Bible, I would put, I would underline uh, when he came to himself, parentheses in the margin, grace. That awakening that gospel awakening is, man, that, that reality is, that's a precious thing when you get a, a clear picture on what's going on in your world. That's grace. When he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my dad. Now, I want to tell him, Father, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Yeah, that sounds good. I'm going to go tell him that. So he arose and went to his dad. And while he was still a long way off, his dad was watching for him. Grace. He had yet to be dismissed by his dad. His father saw him when he was a long way off and he felt compassion, grace. He doesn't deserve his dad to be looking. He doesn't deserve his dad to have compassion. His dad ran and embraced him and kissed him. Grace, grace, grace. And the son said, <clears throat> all right, dad, um, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father interrupts him and says to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and, and put it on him and put a ring on his hand. That implied sonship. And give him new shoes. Grace, grace, grace. I love that grace interrupts the, the, the apology that you are ready to give. It's like, there's no, there's no time for that. Kill the fatted calf. Let's eat and celebrate. Grace. This is my son. He was dead. He's alive again. He was lost. He's found. And they began to get buck wild in celebration. You know that it's crazy because his older, 
the older son, the older brother was out working in the field and he came and drew near to the house and he heard music. I understand that part. But he also heard dancing. If you hear dancing, like that's intense, right? Like that's, that's commotion and motion, okay? All right, 26. He called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. What's going on? Well, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he received him back safe and sound. But the brother was angry and he refused to go in. His father came out. All right, that's grace. His father says, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do this without you. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these years I've served you. I've earned better. I've proven myself. I've never disobeyed your commands. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, this boy, when he came back, by the way, he devoured your property, your property with prostitutes, dad. I haven't done that. And yet you killed a fattened calf for him. Dad, I want to be celebrated. I deserve better than what I'm getting here. And the father says, son, you are always with me. And not just your share, but all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, but for this is your brother. He was dead. He's alive. He was lost, but he's found. The father's love towards the younger rebel is grace. The older rebel, the older brother, his anger towards the father for, for the younger Rebel, he's trying to prove himself. He's speaking out of that performance. I just, I deserve the party. I never left. The big brother chooses to, to stand outside the celebration of grace, complaining about how hard he has worked and how reckless the father has acted with the younger brother. And now we like the younger, the younger son. We like the younger brother, but we often will play the attitude of the older. We want to be received as the younger son, but treat others like the older treated the younger. We so long to hear the words, great job, let's celebrate. We long to hear that. We long to hear others approve of us, to recognize us, to celebrate us, to be looking for us on the horizon, waiting to show compassion. Friends, this is the cross. The cross is God celebrating us, giving us his son to redeem us, not a fattened calf, his own boy, giving his son so that we can live. Yet we can waste so much time, emotion, anxiety, fear, guilt, worry, trying to prove ourselves to God, trying to, to get him to respond to us. But down deep, you see, we believe that if we obey God, then he's going to like us, that he's going to love us, if we can just obey good enough. And the Bible tells us that it's because God has loved us through Jesus that we can obey. Yet down deep, we believe that the world is filled with good and bad people. 
But the gospel tells us the world is filled with bad people. And these bad people either believe Jesus or they don't believe Jesus. That there's none righteous, no, not one. We're all sinners. It's, we're sinners who believe Jesus or we're sinners who don't believe Jesus. Down deep, we believe that you should trust in what you do as a good and moral person. But the gospel says, trust in the perfectly sinless life of Jesus because he alone is the only good and truly moral person who's ever lived. The goal of, of our proving ourselves is to get from God certain things like wealth, health, insight, control, power. But the goal of the gospel it's not the gifts that God gives, but rather it's God. We get God as the greatest gift. Proving ourselves and working and performing is about what we have to do, but the gospel is what we get to do. Proving ourselves or view hard times, it views hard times as punishment from God, but the gospel sees hard times in life as sanctifying afflictions that reminds us of all that Jesus injured for us. And it's used by God, these, these uh, sanctifying afflictions and sufferings in the Christian life are used by God in love, making us more like Jesus. Proving ourselves and performing is about us, yet the gospel is about Jesus. And seeking to prove ourselves leads to an uncertainty about our standing before God. We never truly know if we've done enough to, to cool him off and to, and to make him happy. But the gospel leads us to a certainty about our standing before God because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, on the cross, with his resurrection. Proving ourselves typically will end in trying to prove ourselves will typically end in pride or despair. Pride because we think that we're better than others or despair because no matter what happens, we can't match up. We still fall short. The gospel ends in humble and confident joy in the power of Jesus Christ and his spirit working for us, his spirit working in us, his spirit working through us, <laughs> and often in spite of us. But the lie is we can perform. The lie is we must prove ourselves to God and in front of everybody else. But the truth is Jesus performed for us. Jesus performed for me. Jesus performed for you, and he earned all of God's approval already. There's nothing we can add. We don't get any extra credit. It's taken care of completely. So much so that when God looks at you, he looks at you the same way he looks at Jesus, the perfect son. Because of Jesus, we hear God tell us, I am well pleased with you. You're good enough. You're approved, you're accepted. You, don't, you no longer need to match up. You don't have to perform. And get this, you can't mess it up. It's taken care of completely. And if, if hearing grace is, particularly in this way, is, is new for you this morning, 
and it kind of makes you uncomfortable, I would argue that unless you're kind of uncomfortable with the idea that you're not even close to grace. Because when you truly press into grace, it should make you theologically uncomfortable. It's like, man, this is a little too hard to believe. Yeah, that means we're getting close. Because grace should blow our minds. Grace should explode out of the little box of our theology. It should never make sense. There's a reason why there's songs like Amazing Grace. It's, just, it's beyond comprehension. It is amazing. But we fail to believe it. As Christians, recipients of grace, will fail to believe it. And we will work to be celebrated. We'll work for his approval. We'll work for his acceptance. And we work hard and we crush ourselves to earn what we already have in the finished work of Jesus. Don't misunderstand me. God wants you to work hard. He wants you to pursue holiness. He wants you to pursue Christian community. He wants you to spend time in the word. He wants you to, to live your life as a missionary. He wants you to spend time in prayer. He wants you to be sanctified. He wants you to be holy and set apart. He wants you to love the orphan, love the widow. He wants you to sacrifice things and be inconvenienced in order to be obedient to him. He wants you to be perfectly obedient But do these things because God has loved you through Jesus. Do these things in response to him already showing grace. Do not do anything in the Christian life thinking it's going to earn you extra credit before God's eyes. That you're going to do something to earn his love. That's moralism, that's legalism, that's religion, but it's not Christianity. Yes, God wants you to strive to honor and be obedient, but in response to his grace, not seeking him to be gracious, but because he's already been perfectly gracious. The difference in motive and how we respond and why we respond is the difference between just religion and Christianity. It makes all the difference in the world. It makes all the difference in eternity. So it's important that we understand this. So God graciously redefines us in light of his son so we don't have to prove ourselves any longer. We're secure in him. We're accepted in him. So to kind of summarize the gospel message, we were fallen, we're cursed, we're condemned, we're deceived, we're scared and scarred, we're guilty, we're desperate, irredeemable, hopeless, captive, cowardly criminal, orphan rebels. And we're born this way. We're shame-filled. We're blame-shifting. We're lonely. We're abandoned. We're helpless. We're polluted, dead sinners. And we have catastrophically failed. And we deserve and have earned separation from God. And on top of that, we deserve undiluted, pure wrath from God. We're all this. All of us is all of this. And so here we are standing before God, charged and convicted as lawbreakers of his holy law. 
Now, we're not waiting for our sentencing. Our sentencing has already been pronounced. We're guilty. And we can't cry for justice. That won't help us. We know that we deserve what we're getting. So there's nothing we can do except hang our heads in guilty silence. And in the middle of this heaviness and this silence, God speaks, graciously speaks. Son, you go die, you go be condemned for them so that they can be with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes in him will not die. They'll live forever. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And whoever believes in him is not condemned. John 3, 16, 17, and 18. God speaks in the midst of our guilty silence and rescues us. Jesus has conquered the problem of our death and sin. He's reversed the curse that brought about our death and our separation. God conquers our ignorance. God conquers our blindness, our deafness, our disbelief. And he melts our hard hearts and he opens our blind eyes and he cleanses our hearts from soul leprosy. And what are we left with? We're left with life. We're left with fun. The Christian life should be fun. We're left with joy. We're left with righteousness. We're left with perfection. We're left being called holy and blameless. We're left being called chosen and cherished. We're left with peace in our hearts. We're left knowing that though we deserve to be abandoned, that we have been adopted into the family of God, where we're called son, where we're called daughter. Basically, we're saved. Divine rescue, perfectly pardoned. All of it, grace. None of it deserved or earned. Now, what if we believe this? What if we truly fault to believe this. Think of how it would change your life. Think of how it would change our relationships. If we truly embraced grace, if we truly believed that Jesus performed for us, we wouldn't have to take ourselves so seriously. And it would be okay if others didn't take us, ourselves too seriously either. We no longer have to fear the list of what makes someone valuable or worth something. We no longer have to have the price guide every day to see if our arrow's good or our arrow's going down. The list is gone. Jesus met the list perfectly and called its bluff. We don't have to perform. We don't have to rest. We, or we can rest. We can relax. We can hear Jesus say, come to me, all who are tired and weary, weak and heavy laden, who are exhausted from performing, and I'll give you a bigger list. That's not what he says. He says, I'll give you rest. Take my burden upon you for it's light. It's easy. That is grace. You don't have to compete with your coworkers. You can celebrate your coworkers. It's not a matter of competition. You don't have to exaggerate to impress. You can say no instead of overcommitting and having such high expectations for yourself. You can embrace criticism 
rather than be crushed by it as you're living out being accepted through the performance of Jesus, understanding that God is gracious. So to summarize, because God is gracious, we don't have to prove ourselves. We can rest in our new identity in Christ and make much of him throughout our lives. So I ask you, here's the ask for today. I ask you to stop trying to perform to earn God's grace and favor. And if you were raised in the church like I was, that's really difficult. It's easy to say, I'm in. But come this afternoon, I drift to forgetfulness, like gospel amnesia. And I'll begin fighting for, I'll be fighting for my own performance and trying to prove myself in front of others. On the way home, I'm probably going to try to prove somebody my car's faster than some stranger beside me. I've got something to prove. Silly. But let's together, let's pray asking God to help us stop trying. To see Jesus as the one who performed perfectly for you and embrace him. To reject self-righteousness, thinking that it, it saves you. But don't, don't just mere, don't leave merely uh, trying to work at not working and not performing. Leave working to believe more. Believing more that Jesus has already earned this for you because of the grace of God. Like we've said for the last three weeks, it's probably not in knowing more that's going to lead you to believe that God is gracious, but believing more of what you already know. So the ask is that you would stop trying to earn your salvation and that you would embrace Jesus and that you would spend time considering just how gracious God is towards you. God is gracious. We don't have to continue performing. Because of God being gracious, his son performed for me and for you. And we see the grace of God and his son, Jesus, and all that he's done for us. The gospel itself tells us that God is gracious. So as we take communion this morning and celebrate this fact and remember what Christ has done for us, let our hearts believe. Let's tell our hearts. Let's remind ourselves God is gracious. Tell our hearts, tell yourself as you take the bread and dip it into the juice or the wine, tell yourself, I've been made perfect because of what this represents. Body of Christ, his death, his blood poured out for me. He's performed for me. I'm loved and accepted by the gracious God of the universe. Not through my performance, but through his. Tell yourself that you can rest tell yourself that you don't have to take yourself so seriously. Tell yourself these truths. This is preaching the gospel to yourself. Tell yourself this as you come and take communion. I believe this will induce worship as we make much of our gracious God this morning. Let me pray for us and we'll share in communion together. God, thank you for not just extending grace to us, but Lord, letting that just be part of your nature. Lord, thank you for being gracious. Thank you for letting that be part of who you are, part of your nature, not just in something you do, but who you are. 
Thank you for how freeing that is and how remarkable. And I'm almost, it is unbelievable to think about how gracious, gracious you are. Thank you for that. Thank you for sending Jesus to us. Lord, help us stop trying to perform or trying to look impressive, trying to, trying to earn something from others or from you that we already have in Christ. And, and, and Holy Spirit, I ask that you convict us, that you reveal to us the times where, where we're, we're drifting towards uh, trying to find our worth and value in other things. Would, would, you, would you, Spirit, would you convict us in that moment and prove to us that we won't be satisfied there? Show us that we're, we've already got what we're trying to find there already in you. God, do this work in our hearts. Let this change the way we relate to you, the way that we relate to our spouses, our coworkers, our classmates, our roommates, our children. Help these truths that we've been studying truly make a difference, not just in our mind intellectually or theologically, but in our hearts and how we actually live them out. God, do this for us. Help us think on these things. And add your blessing to our time together as we remember your work through the Lord's table this morning. In Christ's name, amen.